We've been taking some time this summer to, to look at some of those characteristics, those character qualities that, that God is at work forming and shaping in our lives. Uh, uh, summarized in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the things that, that are to mark followers of Jesus Christ in ever-increasing measure. We've kind of summarized the, 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 the theme of this uh, series in the statement uh, that, that God, God is at work. God is at work uh, in, in the, the, the display and develop the character of Christ in the followers of Christ, to develop and display the character of Christ in the followers of Christ. And it's not pick and choose which of these you want, but all of these are to be a part of our lives. We're going to focus on uh, the, the, the characteristic that in most English translations is translated uh, goodness. Goodness. And we want to talk about that in terms of, of the good life. And immediately that kind of raises a question question for us. So what are we talking about when we're talking about goodness or the good life? What exactly is the good life? And we have a lot of different answers to that, right? For some folks, immediately when we say, well, the good life, they might think about, well, it's, it's, it's about looking good, right? Yeah, looking good. Looking good is, is the good life, right? And how much time, how much money do we spend over the course of our lifetime uh, trying to look good, right? Uh, yeah, we, we, we invest an awful lot in looking good. Well, some folks say, well, the good life is, is more than that. It's, it's more about feeling good. It's feeling good that I, I have the, these, these feelings. I have a good feeling about myself or how my life's going or the direction or that sort of thing. And so the good life uh, is about feeling good. Other folks would say, well, those are important for sure, but the good life is about having the goods, right? You got you to have the goods and you got to have uh, enough stuff. And, and so we oftentimes can spend a lifetime accumulating stuff there along the way. And listen, all things being equal, most of us would rather you look good, feel good, and have at least a reasonable amount of goods, right? It helps life to, to, to be uh, more comfortable along the way. But the Bible, when it talks about the good life, it is, it is far more than that. The good life, when the Bible talks about it, is a life marked by goodness. It is a life marked by goodness. And then, of course, that's kind of like the dictionary definition, right? Well, then you have to look up another word. What's goodness, right? What, what do we mean by goodness? Well, let's, let's look at Scripture first, uh, Ephesians. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There's a part of goodness that certainly includes this, this sense of, of our life being characterized by good works. Colossians 1, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of 
God. So good works is certainly a, a, an inherent part of this goodness, but let's, let, let's press on a little bit, and if I can get a little theological dictionary on you here for just a moment. When you read the, the word goodness in the Bible, it may be referring to the goodness of God, or it may be referring to goodness in human beings or in mankind. When, when it's in the context of speaking about God, goodness in, in God is, is really about the perfection of his character. And uh, you see the definition there on, you, on the screen. The perfect, a perfection of his character, which he exercises toward his creatures according to their various circumstances and relations. So there is this sense of, of when the Bible talks about the goodness of God, it's almost the sum total, the perfection of his character. We were just singing a few moments ago, he is a good, good father. It's just, it's just who he is, inherent in who he is. But when that word is applied to human beings, we can kind of begin to unpack it in this way. It's not a mere passive quality, but the deliberate preference of right to wrong. The firm and persistent resistance of all, and I think that all is important, all moral evil and the choosing and following of, again, all moral good. So when, when we talk about uh, goodness, it, it has to do with distinguishing and discerning between right and wrong, preferring the right to the wrong, uh, pushing away from resisting all moral evil, pursuing and following all moral good. That is what marks goodness or the good life for those who are followers of Jesus Christ. But there's a problem. The Bible says the problem is simply this, we are not inherently good. We are not inherently good. And I know immediately upon saying that, some of you may, may be pushing back a little bit because you say, wait a minute, I've heard people say, you know, all people are basically good. And I, I get that. I understand that. And, and I think probably what a lot of folks mean by that when they say that sometimes is that, is that a lot of people, all of us, because of the image of God that still remains in us, we, we, we can still do good things. I mean, even the worst of us is capable of good actions uh, from time to time, right, along the way. But the Bible says when, when you think about the core of our being, we are not inherently good. Let me give you one example of that. Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 10. In Mark's gospel, this uh, rich young ruler, as he's uh, referred to in some of the gospels, comes up to ask Jesus a question. And we won't dive into the, the exact question because I just want you to see the initial interchange around this. As he was setting out on his journey, this is Jesus getting ready to set out, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life. Now notice Jesus' response. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now Paul's right there. Jesus is challenging him. You're calling me good, but the, the reality is there, is there is no one who is inherently good except God in the perfection of his character. And so in this context, he's, he, is, he is challenging the man, Do, are you recognizing my deity? Are you recognizing me as God? But he challenges that assumption that, uh, that we as human beings are inherently good. And you may be saying, well, I don't know, I'm still kind of struggling with that. Well, I think 
think there are reasons to support that claim. The first one is we've already touched on. The Bible states it. The Bible states it. The Bible stated it in in Mark's gospel, but let me give you a couple of other places in Romans. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Even our our best days and our best acts are scarred and marred by sin. For all have sinned, he would say just a few verses later, and fall short of the glory of God. That because of sin, since the the Garden of Eden and the rebellion of Adam and Eve, we we have inherited this sin nature. We have inherited this this non-goodness, if you will. And so we are not inherently good. The Bible states it, but even beyond that, even if you did not have the Bible, you could just look around. You could look at the facts of history. The facts of history. And you look at, 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 at what we call man's inhumanity to man, you think, how in the world could we possibly do those things to one another? You look over the scope of human history and you realize there have been very, very, very few seasons where, where somebody has not been at war with somebody else across the span of human history. And on and on and on the list goes, whether it's a, a greed or a deception and on and on. The facts of history testify to the fact we have a problem. We have a problem. But let me, let me go one level a little closer. How about just the observation of children? How about the observation of children, right? Okay. I was at a, a birthday party yesterday. My, my grandson turned three years old this past week. And we, so we had a, had a birthday party. It was a great time, you know, puppy theme, all this fun stuff. I mean, it was great having a good time. There were adults there eating hot dogs, all this. And there was this little, little group of kids. And you just watched. And it was like, wow, this is like sin on display here, isn't it? And you start, start opening the presents, right? And every kid starts to grab a present and take it, right? And, of course, what does my grandson do? He goes over and takes it back and says, mine, right? Mine, brings it back, right? And then after the presents, there was, there was, there was, you know, hitting and there was pushing and shoving and all of these things going on, right? And and when you stop and you think, nobody had to teach any of those kids to do those things, Nobody had to teach any of those kids. Now, you're going to want to be selfish someday, so why don't you just run over there and grab something that doesn't belong to you? And, and you're going to get upset with somebody, and you just shove them. I mean, it's okay. Just womp them upside the head till they cry. It's okay. You go ahead and do that, right? We don't have to teach any of those things, right? None of you ever said to your children, yeah, now I'm going to want you to lie to me someday, you know, and this is how you're going to do it. Now, you don't teach any of those things, right? Now, some of you are looking righty self-righteous out there. It's just not my grandchild. I'll tell you what, I've seen some of your kids, all right? I, I've seen some of your kids and grandkids. Let's talk here. Let's talk here for just a minute, okay? All right? And besides, the only reason mine did it is because he was provoked. That, that's, that's the reason, right? <laughs> All right, we all have rationalizations and justifications, right? We do. You just have to observe children. I know they look so angelic when they're sleeping. (laughs) 
right? But you observe and you know something's amiss in the wiring from the get-go. But let's go one level deeper. I don't have to look just at history. I don't just have to look at children. I can look in my own heart. I can look in my own heart and know I got a problem. I can know the desires that sometimes surface there. I can sense the greed or the envy, the, the, the hatred, the unrighteous anger, all and all, whatever it is. All those things that can surface from time to time. And you know that it's, it's not just out there. It's in here. It's in here. I know when the Bible says we are not inherently good, it's true. That's the bad news. The good news is that we can have a goodness but our goodness is a gift from God. It is something that we don't have inherently on our own, but that God offers to us. He offers it to us through Jesus Christ. Paul writing to Titus, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly, through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. To the Ephesians, he put it even more succinctly, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That God says, I offer to you a gift. It's not based on your righteousness. It's not based on, on your inherent goodness, but it's, it's based on the goodness and the loving kindness and the mercy and the grace of Almighty God. And he offers to us a gift, a gift of forgiveness, a gift of restoration, a gift of healing, a gift of hope, a gift of life abundant, a life eternal. He offers to us the gift of goodness but a gift must not only be given but a gift always has to be received a gift can be offered but it can be ignored it can be forgotten it can be rejected and so we have to respond to the gift that God wants to give us the gift of his goodness and the way to do that and the way that I I just love to kind of talk to people about that is about establishing a spiritual base in my life For this becomes the platform upon which I live the good life. B-A-S-E, it's just been a very helpful way for me to think about and communicate to others about how to receive and respond to the gift of Jesus Christ. The B is for believe. Believe that I have to believe what the Bible says about me and my need and, and my inability to, to rescue myself. I have to believe what it says about the life that Jesus lived and the death that he died voluntarily on the cross, that he was, he was sealed in a tomb, he was resurrected, he's raised, he's ascended, and he's coming again someday. I have to believe that what Jesus Christ did is sufficient for my rebellion and my sin and that he can offer me new 
new life. He can offer me forgiveness. He can offer me goodness in God. I have to believe certain things, but I also have to admit. I have to admit, I have to admit, I can't rescue myself. My morality, my resolutions, my desire to, to, to fix it is, is not enough. I have to admit that I have rebelled against God. I have chosen my way instead of his. I have to admit that, that, that I cannot rescue myself. I can't excuse my skin, sin. I can't blame it on somebody else. I have to own it. I have to own it. And when I admit it, and I believe what Jesus did for me that I could not do for myself, I have to be willing to switch, to switch. To switch from trusting that I'm okay, you're okay. Switch from trusting in my goodness or my religion or my morality and switch to trusting in Jesus Christ and his provision, his life, death, burial, and resurrection, his provision for the forgiveness of my sin and the restoration of my life. I have to switch from running my own life, being in charge of my own life to allowing him to be the rightful leader and Lord and boss and director of my life from this point forward. And I have to switch. The Bible calls that repentance. It's a a change of of mind that leads to this change of direction. And so I, I switch from trusting in myself to trusting in him. And then the E is express, that I express that to him. I express that to him perhaps initially in the quietness of my heart. But he also commands me to express that publicly, to express that uh, to another, to express that publicly uh, through the waters of baptism, that, that symbol of that death and burial and resurrection, not only of Christ, but of my old life apart from him, and that I have a new life because I have uh, responded to his gift by establishing this spiritual base in my life. And so I'm just going to pause right here, knowing that there may be some of you in this room right here, right now, that God has brought you to this moment on purpose and on time. He has brought you here today because today is the day for you to not just be merely religious, but to establish that spiritual base in your life. And this is what I'm going to just urge you to do. Before you leave this room today, I'm going to ask you to express that to somebody. And the, the physical space that we've set aside for that to take place is the connect room. And there's a banner there ha- hanging from the wall that says connect. Some folks can help you get there. But at the close of our service today, there's going to be some folks to be available to you. And maybe you have a question about establishing a spiritual base. Maybe you just need to talk to somebody and say, it's time for me to publicly express my faith the way that Jesus modeled and taught through the waters of baptism. Whatever it may be, the connect room and the connect team is the place for you to be we want to help you as you take that next step in obedience to God when I establish that spiritual base in my life when I when I respond to the gift of God God does something in me God forgives God restores God heals that's just the beginning of a journey however when we receive God's gift of eternal life he begins to transform our desires and our abilities. Notice how Paul phrased it to the Philippians. Work out your own salvation. Never never work for your salvation. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God, you can do so with confidence, for it is God who works in you, both to will, desire, and to work, ability, for his good 
pleasure. That one of the things that God does when, when God seals you with his Holy Spirit, when you have established and responded to him with that spiritual base in your life, he begins this lifelong process from that point forward of, of conforming you more and more to the image of Jesus Christ, more and more to reflect the fruit of the Spirit, more and more to reflect the goodness of the character of God. So he begins to change your desire. So more and more you, you begin to, to desire the right instead of the wrong. He begins to transform your ability so more and more you have the capacity to firmly and persistently resist all moral evil and intentionally choose and follow all moral good. That God begins to work in us to make us with a greater capacity to live with that goodness. But we have a role to play. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And as we've seen throughout this series on the fruit of the Spirit, while God does a work within us, He calls us to cooperate with that work. And so that's what I want to spend the last part of our time focusing on. How do I cooperate with God in living the good life. And I'm just going to give you just a a few things that I think will be perhaps foundational and helpful to living that out. The first is to immerse yourself in the Bible. Immerse yourself in the Bible. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Notice the last phrase Paul wrote to Timothy, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You want to be equipped for every good work, immerse yourself in God's Word. Because we're all, we're all going to form value systems. We're all going to develop our values. And when it comes to developing our values, there's only going to be two sources upon which we'll develop those values from. The Word or the world. The word or the world. And by default, we are surrounded by a world system that, that, that at times seems increasingly hostile to God, at times seems increasingly distancing itself from the standards of God, increasingly wants to tell us there's no right or wrong, there's just opinions, there's just preferences, there's just differences along the way. But we have to come back to the unchanging standard of God's word and immerse yourself in the Bible. I have to come again and again and again and allow the Word to shape my values, my understanding of right and wrong, of good and evil along the way. So it begins as I immerse myself in the Bible. If I just occasionally blow by it, if I just occasionally dust it all, I'm going to find myself being shaped more by the world than by the Word. So I immerse myself in the Word of God. And as I immerse myself in the Word of God, guard your heart. Guard your heart. Many of you have, have, have heard the, the, this proverb through the years. Keep your heart with all vigilance. Above all else, some of the translations say, guard your heart. For from it flow the springs of life, that you have to give attention to what you're taking in. Finally, brothers, Paul wrote to the the Philippians, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if if there is in anything worthy of praise, think about these 
things. Why is this so important? Because sin starts in your mind. Sin inevitably starts in the mind. It starts with our faults. And so to to engage in that battle, we need to engage on the battlefront of our mind. And even as we're immersing ourselves in the Word, we have to give attention to the other things that we are feeding our mind along the way. Particularly, I always say, pay attention to the eye gate. What am I seeing? What am I taking in through my eyeballs? One of the major feeders of our mind, right? Pay attention to the ear gate. What am I hearing? What am I listening to? What's coming in? All those things are feeding my mind. And then pay attention to the thoughts I'm dwelling on. That's why Paul was purposeful with the Philippians. Pay attention to these things. Think on these things. Think about these things. What am I dwelling on? What am I meditating on? What am I kind of ruminating on? What thoughts do I constantly seem to dwell on along the way? Now, hear me. I I understand the world in which we all live. You, You don't have total control over everything you see, right? You don't have total control over everything you hear. You don't have total control over every thought that pops into your mind. But here's the thing that you and I can control. I can control what I fix my eyes on. I can control what I turn my eyes away from. I can control the things that I turn off or the conversations I walk away from. I can choose, even if that thought comes into my mind, I can choose I'm not going to stay there. I'm going to replace it with another thought. I'm going I'm to bring perhaps some truth from God's Word or, or something else I'm going to focus my thoughts on. And in those ways, I am guarding my heart. When you immerse yourself in the Word, as you are diligent about guarding your heart, then you begin to develop convictions. Develop convictions. Let love be genuine, Paul wrote to the Romans. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Someone said, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything, right? And it's true. Now, now, here's one of the things we have to pay attention to, because a lot of times how we sometimes define words in our culture and how the Bible uses words are different. Love is one of the examples of that. So, so in our day and age, sometimes you hear things like this, oh, well, can't we just love each other? I mean, I don't know about all those, those the theological or value system disagreements, but, but can't we just love each other? I mean, I believe in love. Love is the, the highest uh, ethic and the highest value. And, and so you believe what you want to believe, and you practice what you want to practice, and we're not going to judge each other, and, and we're just going to love. And it's like, doesn't that? That sound great i mean it's like okay who wants to vote against love right i mean no way but see when the bible talks about loving the bible recognizes that there is evil and there is good and inherent in loving well is abhorring what is evil and clinging or holding fast to what is good 
if a parent loves a child, there are things they don't want in that child's life because they know evil, they know wrong, they know it not only dishonors God, but it destroys people, it destroys relationships, it it disfigures and distorts the the goodness and the glory of God. It it gets us so twisted up so that we no longer resemble the person that God created us to be. If I love, I am going to abhor evil and cling to what is good. But in a culture that continually tells you there is no good or evil, there's just choices. It's just like, you like vanilla ice cream, I like chocolate. It doesn't matter. No. You're going to have to develop convictions. There's a difference between an opinion and a conviction, by the way. Someone said that an opinion is something that you hold. A conviction is something that holds you. An opinion is something you'll argue for a conviction is something you'll live for perhaps even suffer for and yes even in today's world even die for there are a lot of folks that even frequent church from time to time who have quote unquote biblical opinions until those are tested in the fire Convictions are something that holds you, that you live for, that might even suffer for, and perhaps even die for. Goodness means that I live life from a core set of convictions. I'm not harsh, I'm not judgmental, I'm certainly not arrogant or self-righteous because I know all of my goodness comes from God as his gracious gift to me. But because of that, and because I love, I'm going to call right, right, and wrong, wrong. Evil, evil, and good, good. You're going to have to develop convictions. And if you're going to live a life marked by goodness, as you have those convictions, you're going to have to exercise courage. You're going to have to exercise courage. One of my favorite passages, I just just love some of those first chapters of the book of Joshua. Joshua's taking over the reins of leadership from Moses. And as he's given this impossible assignment, these impossible shoes to fill, he, he he is given this message from God. He is commanded, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now, the odds are most of us are never going to to lead people into a physical battle like Joshua did. But the scripture says we are in a spiritual battle every single day. And I don't want to over, over mysticize that. I, I'm not one of those who sees a demon in every bush. And every time the sound system crackles, say the de- demon's in there, it's usually a loose wire or something, right? But I don't want to oversell that. But the reality of scripture is we do live in a world where there is a spiritual battle. There are spiritual forces of darkness at work. 
And in the midst of that, if you're going to live a life of distinction, if you're going to live a life of godliness, holiness, and goodness, you're going to have to be a man. You're going to have to be a woman of courage. And at times, you're going to be scared. Eddie Rickenbacker famously said, courage is doing what you're afraid to do. There can be no courage unless you're scared. It's one thing to have convictions when everybody agrees with you. It's another when the heat is on. It's another when your job's on the line. It's another when you're about to be ostracized or perhaps even imprisoned. You're going to have to exercise courage. And one of the keys to exercising courage is to be in an environment where you can be encouraged. And that's the fifth one, meet with other believers. Meet with other believers. Because in the world in which we live, we need one another. We need one another. That's why the the writer of Hebrews was, was careful to lift up this practice. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together is is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You're going to need courage to live out of your convictions that have grown from immersing yourself in the Word and guarding diligently your heart. And that encouragement is going to come through the body of Christ. It's going to come when you enter into community with other believers so that you can encourage one another and stir up one another to love and to good works. I need that. You need that along the way. It's part of God's design. We not only need Him, but we need one another. Now, as we think about this, let me me try to frame this in this way. Because as we talk about, about, about living a life marked by goodness we can often see kind of three possible responses to living in the present world, particularly when it, when it comes to this living a life uh, of goodness. The first response is maybe the one that's easiest to spot, and that is imitation. Imitation. So that um, perhaps we claim to be a follower of Christ, or perhaps our life has been touched by the saving grace of Jesus Christ, but, but because of the, 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 the world's uh, seeking to conform us into its mold, because of the pressures there, we, we find ourselves kind of drifting toward an end of a spectrum that says, says I'm going to go along to get along. I, I'm going to try not to cause a lot of waves. And so I, I begin to more and more kind of imitate the values and the practices of the current world. Less and less do I become distinct. Less and less do I become a person of light in a world full of darkness. Less and less do I become that, that salty alternative. But as Jesus said, if I, that salt loses its saltiness of what value is it along the way. And so I have slid into imitation. There are many folks in our country and our culture who have the cultural label Christian, but functionally live a life of imitation. They just imitate everything that goes on in culture. 
On perhaps the other end of the spectrum would be the response of isolation, of isolation, so that we we would say, well, I'm going to take seriously the commands of God to to live a life of uh, of goodness, and to do so, I increasingly separate myself from the world, and so that we begin to develop holy huddles. We begin to develop a Christian subculture, and in, in more and more over time, we have less and less and less connection with the world. We operate primarily within this this bubble, if you will, this circle, and it isolates us from the world. Imitation and isolation were not what Jesus Christ calls us to. I think the better understanding is that God has called us to a life of infiltration, of infiltration. So that we are distinct, we are different, we are standing out, living a life of of goodness. But we do so uh, not in isolation from the world, but we do so in contact with the world. Notice how Paul challenged the Philippians. That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish. Now, notice where? In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. In the midst of that generation, in the midst of a world of of darkness, you stand distinct. Jesus put it this way, in the same way, let your light shine, where? Before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven jesus taught in those many parables he said you don't light a light and hide it under a bushel basket that's isolation you strategically position it so that the darkness will be penetrated by the light Sometimes we're, in the words of uh, Becky Pippard, we're, we're, we're Christians, we're salt, but we, we all huddle up in the salt shaker. None of us buys salt to fill up our salt shaker and put it on the table and say, isn't that a pretty display of salt? Ah, oh, you get that thing out so you can shake it, right? You want it to season and infiltrate the food. You want it to impact its taste. That's who God has called us to be. You are to be salt in a world of decay. You are to be light in a world of darkness. And so you don't, uh, you don't imitate the world. You don't isolate from the world, but you intentionally infiltrate the world, living as a man or woman who is immersed in the Word of God, who is, who is uh, guarding diligently their heart, who has developed convictions, who operates out of a love that abhors evil and clings to what what is good, who exercises courage and finds strength and encouragement and mutual stirring up of one another in the community of faith. That's the life of goodness. That's the good life that God has called each of us to live. But I'll tell you, it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy. And there are times you may want to just give up the fight. There are times you may want to say, it's not worth it. I'm just going to go along to get along. There may be times you say, it's not worth it. I'm tired of the battle. I'm just going to withdraw and isolate. But God has called you to infiltrate. 
Living the good life is not always easy, but it is eternally, it is eternally worthwhile. Let me close with this encouragement from Scripture. Paul wrote to the Galatians, and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. I don't know, maybe there's somebody here today and maybe you're weary. And maybe you're weary and you say, enough, I'm going to just go with the flow. Don't give up. Maybe you say, I'm just going to isolate and just, just kind of protect and, and just tiptoe safely to the grave and somehow then get to heaven. Don't withdraw. Continue to do good. For in due season, you will reap if you do not give up. I was reading a few weeks ago about Jonas Salk, the discoverer of the polio vaccine. It took him over 200 tries before he discovered the polio vaccine. Aren't you glad he didn't stop at 150? I mean, think about it. Aren't you glad he didn't give up after that 160th try? continued to persevere and all of our lives have been impacted because of it max Lakato, many of you know that name many of you have read his books his books regularly sell in the hundreds of thousands of copies he's a best-selling author for a num- number of years but his first attempt at being an author a published author was in 1985 he was a missionary in brazil he had written a book on the anvil about how God shapes our character. Max tried 15 different publishers and was rejected 15 different times before he could finally get that book published. Many of you would say, I'm glad he didn't quit. I'm glad he didn't give up because hundreds of thousands of people's lives have been impacted because one man decided not to give up. I don't know who God's going to impact through your life. I don't know how many, but this is what I know. Don't give up. Don't give up. Because in due season, you will reap if you do not give up. Let's bow our heads together as we pray today, please. Oh, Father, thank you. Thank you for the gift of goodness. Thank you that you have done for us what we could not do for ourselves. Father, thank you for your grace, your mercy, your love. Father, thank you that you are at work in our lives right now, that we might desire, that we might have an enhanced ability and and capacity to, to, to serve you, to walk in holiness, to walk in goodness for your glory, for our good, for the benefit of others. And so, Father, I just pray today, Lord, I pray very specifically right now, knowing that there 
there may be some in this room that, Father, today is the day for them to establish a spiritual base. Today is the day for them to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Today is the day for them to receive the gift of your goodness. Lord, I pray that today, before they leave this room, that they would do a deep business with you. Father, I pray that you even now would just give them that prompting, that that encouragement, that courage uh, to, to make their way to a connect room, to talk with somebody about how to establish that spiritual base in their life. Father, let today be the day of their salvation. Father, I just pray right now for, for some of us perhaps that, 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 Lord, we need to go public with our faith, and, and baptism is the next step, and, Lord, that we would just express our faith publicly to you. Father, for some, you're just calling them to this church family to, to unite in this place so that we might stir one another up and encourage one another along the way. Father, let, let today be the day they plant their flag and say, this is the place where God would have me to invest my life. Father, there are some who are in the battle. They've grown weary. Maybe they've just begun to slide more and more toward imitation or isolation. Lord, today, today would you call them back? Would you call them to a life of infiltration? Lord, show us. Show us how we can up our game. Show us how we can do an even better job of cooperating with you in nurturing and growing the gift of goodness, of truly living the good life. And I'm just going to ask you to take just a couple moments more as we wrap up this time of worship, to just sit before the Lord and look at that box in your note-taking guide that invites you to make it personal. As you scan those questions, just going to Trust that the Holy Spirit may kind of arrest your attention on one of those today. And that's where you need to park initially. And just stay right there and say, God, what's next? What would you have me to do in response to what you have done for me? What would you have me to do in your strength, in your grace, in your enablement? What should look different these next seven days than has the past seven? And as God just brings that to your mind, just for your purposes, for your eyes and God's, maybe just write a word, a phrase, a sentence. To begin to say, God, this, this, is, this is how I make this personal. This is how I cooperate with you. So you continue to do that. Just remind you of the connect room one last time.